The following is sponsored by Reformation Heritage Books, online at heritagebooks.org. Learn more at the conclusion of today's podcast. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name is Carl Truman, Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College in beautiful western Pennsylvania. And I'm here on the Alliance Bond Villain Yacht in the mm. Caribbean, broadcasting with my friend, <laughs> uh, the Reverend, the Right Reverend, mm-hmm. His Holiness, Todd Pruitt, yeah. uh, pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Yeah. And just so thankful for the massive coffers of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. We are. We are. Uh, you know, I'll tell yeah. you. I don't know why I continue to teach. I, I, could, I could retire and just live I, off the... Right, uh, right. I, I could I could work in the mail room and uh, and re- and retire in two years based yeah. upon what the alliance uh, their resources. It's <laughs> yeah. quite remarkable. Yeah. I so. suppose we should thank our sponsors, uh, Blofeld and Spectre, for the use of the. Uh, <laughs> so I was just saying to Todd last night, what a disappointment! The, the new Bond films. It's a good movie, but goodness gracious me, uh, Bond now respects women. Um, yeah. it's, it, it's it, just in some ways it's an same. improvement in other ways it made me long for the days of Goldfinger and Doctor No <laughs> when I was watching it but anyway it's a pleasure to be with you all today uh, we have a, a, a repeat offender guest on uh, one of our favourites actually one of our mm. favourite human beings mm. that we've ever had on the mm-hmm. show uh, Professor Mark Talbot who is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Wheaton College uh, just outside Chicago great to have you on the show Mark it's great to be back. Well, Mark is back on the show because uh, a year or two ago, he wrote uh, a book that, quite frankly, I thought was one of the, certainly one of the best ones mm-hmm. I read that year, one of the best mm-hmm. books I've ever read on suffering. And I've been very blessed when the stars disappear, which was a, a book, the brevity of which was deceptive. Mm-hmm. It was just over 100 pages long. And yet every page dripped with profound reflections upon suffering and the human condition. And it was part of a projected, I think, tetralogy. That's right. That's right. Four volumes for those who don't know what tetralogy is, should explain to the, uh, anybody under the age of 25 may struggle with that sort of word. Uh, the second volume has just come out. And I had the privilege of, of reading this. Uh, with a view to giving it a commendation some months ago. The second volume, uh, Give Me Understanding That I May Live, Situating Our Suffering Within God's Redemptive Plan, has just come out. And there, there are a few books that I remember, he- I hesitate because I remember John Piper saying, You should never say a book is a must read, only the Bible is a must read. And, uh, I want to say, after the Bible, this book is, it will be a wonderful book for pastors, a wonderful book for anybody involved in the caring profession. And a wonderful book for Christians in general to read because it deals with something, as I've said, is you may not be suffering at the moment, but we all suffer in the end. And we need to be prepared for that. And we need to have 
a theological and biblical framework for making sense, for interpreting our suffering. Uh, so, Mark, it's great to have you back on the program and wonderful to see the emergence of the, the second volume. It uh, has been uh, really um, worthwhile to write the second volume, Carl, even for me to go through what I call the full Christian story of creation, rebellion, redemption, and consummation, and think that through step by step and contrast that with uh, the general story that we get nowadays by means of naturalism is just a remarkable um, chance to understand how Christianity brings meaning to life in a way that naturalism cannot. Mm-hmm. That's great. I mean, and one of the things that I love about the second, well, there are two, th- many things I love about the second volume, but two of the things that struck me very powerfully, Mark, were this. One, uh, you, the power of narrative. You know, human beings, we're narrative beings. We live lives according to to stories. And, and, and in saying that, I don't want to go down the, the postmodern rabbit hole. Right. As Christians, we live lives according to a story that is true. It right. has objective truth. And, and what you do in this book is you, you bring that out so beautifully. But also, and I think beyond what the first book did, the first book is a book that Without hesitation, I would say any Christian of any stripe or shade could pick up and read and find nothing they disagree with. In the second book, you're moving us, I think, in a more distinctively Protestant uh, slash evangelical kind of direction. And what I'd like to do, what Todd and I would like to do, is is talk through that that creation, rebellion, suffering, redemption sort of framework and allow you to bring out uh, the great, if you like, generic Christian truths, but also the distinctive evangelical dimensions of uh, of what you're doing so perhaps start with with creation why do you think the doctrine of creation is very important for a a theological understanding of suffering well the way that i put it carl is that um if we don't know the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of consummation then what we're going to tend to think is that the lord that that god created a world that involved human suffering from the start Mm -hmm. And in that case, we're likely to blame him when we see some of the awful suffering that there is in the world. But the doctrine of creation, as we find it, especially in the first three chapters of Genesis, the doctrine of creation makes clear that God created a pristine world, not a perfect world. The perfect world, if we can put it this way, will come into consummation when we are face to face with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But he created a pristine world where there was no human suffering and where, in fact, we find that he was working for our good. The fact that he said in the second chapter of Genesis after he's created the man and put him in the Garden of Eden and, in fact, um, given him commands, the fact that he said it is not good for the man to be alone and then creates the woman to be the ideal counterpart of the man tells us just how much God was concerned for the good, for the welfare of human beings. And as we, in terms of thinking about this kind of classic Protestant understanding of, of redemptive history. Of course, we rejoice in the goodness of creation. Um, and, and part of the reason we rejoice in the goodness of creation is related to what you said just a few moments ago, which is 
in it are the seeds of hope of, of the consummation at the end of the age, yes. which, which we look forward to and is the great Christian hope. But, but of course, after, after the goodness of creation, you, you know, we have this catastrophic thing that happens and now things like decay and human evil and what we might call, uh, you know, disastrous acts of, of nature. You know, I, I think about Jesus's words where he's asked about Pilate's slaughter of, of the Galilean pilgrims uh, at the temple. And then Jesus goes even further and says, well, yeah, there's that. And there's also the, the collapse of the Tower of, of Siloam. And, and in that, right. he, you know, he encompasses both the, a natural disaster and an act of human evil. And of course, I mean, you're you're a professor. You work with students um, and, and have done for years. Uh, and and I'm a pastor. I, I I deal with people who ask questions and and invariably um, over the years of ministry. And my guess is that you've had a similar experience working with students, largely from Christian backgrounds. The question is, why does this happen? Why right. did this person die? Why did this happen to me? Why? Right. And those are legitimate questions. How do you um, explain for, for the student who's asking honestly? I'm perplexed. I'm dismayed over my mother's cancer or over this accident that has done this to my body or or whatever it may be. How do you explain this, anchoring it in the story that the Bible has to tell? I think we start, Todd, by making clear that uh, for persons such as us. Um, The source of real life is, in fact, communion with God. Uh, Persons need communion with other persons and especially with God. And when Adam and Eve decided to rebel against God, to disobey his command not to eat from the forbidden tree, they severed their spiritual lifeline to God. And then that meant that biological death was going to be inevitable for all of us. Mm -hmm. Uh, The way that I put it, is that we're like zombies. Our natural state, if you think uh, your way through Ephesians 2, um, our natural state is that we are dead in our transgressions Mm -hmm. and that we are still moving about. We look like we're alive, but we're not really. And so everyone is going to die. The way that Henri Blochet puts it in his great book in the beginning is that from the time that Adam and Eve Uh, rebelled against God and disobeyed him. All of life is a kind of funeral procession. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens is, what do we say then to uh, people who see that the funeral procession seems to have um, uh, come home in their families? And so someone's mother is dying of cancer, or maybe as one of my students a few years ago, found out she was pregnant and she found out that she had an anencephalic baby, mm-hmm. which meant that it virtually had no brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, They went ahead and gave birth to the baby. The baby lived for a few hours and died. The question is why? Mm-hmm. I think the ultimate answer goes back to creation. It goes back to the fact that if you work your way through Genesis 1, God was creating an ordered world for human beings to live in. We're told in verse 26 of chapter one that let us make human beings in our image so that they can have dominion over the earth. Being made in God's image means that we need to understand. He made us such that we can understand the way that he made the world. We can investigate it. We can make some sense of it. Now, after the fall, when all of creation has been touched by sin, as Romans 8 tells us, 
after the fall, these what I like to call causal regularities. I don't like to call them causal laws because it's too easy for people to think if you talk in terms of causal laws, that there's the sorts of things where God could have set them up and then stepped away from the world and not be concerned about anymore. The causal regularities he holds in place, we could say moment by moment, these causal regularities are still there, but now they bring bad as well as good. Mm -hmm. And as the author of Ecclesiastes tells us, None of us, in fact, can peer into the future and know what sorts of bads and goods are going to come to us. And so the author of Ecclesiastes says, I have seen righteous people who get what the wicked deserve. I've seen wicked people get what the righteous deserve. He claims that the reason why the world looks as if it moves forward just by chance is because it teaches us to fear God in the right sort of way. John Calvin said, of course, God is in charge of everything that's happening, but we can't see that. And so for us, when something really bad happens in our family, it appears to us as if it's chance. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as I've, as I've preached over the last couple of years through, through Genesis, I, I was asked inevitably about uh, God's intentions or, or, you know, what was the wisdom behind establishing a, a prohibition in paradise, you know, was, you know, it, it, you know, is God yeah. setting us up at that side? And, and, and one of the things I tried to explain is that actually there, there was um, tr- tremendous goodness in this because uh, yes. it, in that God is, was tutoring his people to know how the creature is to respond to the creator so yes. that they would know who they are and they would understand who he is. I'd go even further, Todd. Yeah. What I would want to claim is that by giving our first parents a prohibition, he was giving them something where, in fact, there was a decisive yes or no yeah. that they could offer to whether or not uh, they would be fully committed to him. Mm-hmm. And it's the equivalent of his stepping away from them and his saying what our Lord said to the Laodiceans in uh, the third chapter of Revelation, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Uh, If anyone opens the door, I'll come in and sup with them. And so God was being gracious to our first parents by actually giving them this great opportunity to have said, we will follow you wholly, completely with our whole hearts, Uh, in such a way that we will not allow anything else to get in the way of our worship of you. And they didn't do it. Yeah. And I think that, that the economy of the, of the language of the Genesis account sometimes can, uh, people will miss the radical evil of that rebellion. You had two individuals without a sin nature in paradise with perfect communion with God. And even then they, they rebelled against him. Uh, it, it is it is a description of a radical evil. I think what I want to say is that they weren't in perfect communion with him. The reason being that it seems to me that perfect communion mm. is a state that is covenant-like. In other words, yeah. you've got to 
agree you've got with your whole heart to be in perfect communion. Mm-hmm. They were in perfect communication with him. Yeah, yeah. There was nothing wrong with their relationship with him, but they were not willing to take that step, which is like the step that we take in marriage of saying, uh, I will have and hold you. Uh, I, uh, forsaking all others, I will be yours throughout all time. If they had done that, mm. then their communion of God would have become completely full. Yeah. Chapter three of the book, Mark, is entitled Suffering, What It Is and How It Affects Us. What's the contribution uh, in this section of the book? Well, for one, I define suffering, Carl, in a way that I don't know anyone else to have done it. Now, maybe this is just my lack of reading, but I want to be able to make clear to my readers that we all suffer to some degree. And so I define suffering as any experience which is unpleasant enough that we'd like it to end. Any experience that's unpleasant enough that we'd like it to end, to some degree, you can get that particular view of suffering out of Hebrews chapter 12. And then the idea would be that we suffer varying uh, in various ways as far as degrees and kinds. So, for instance, when God cursed the ground with Adam in Genesis 3.17, the idea is that for the rest of his existence, Adam is going to have to scratch a living from the ground and that work is not going to be pleasant. He was given work before the fall and work was an essential part of his life and a fulfilling part of his life after the fall. In fact, work becomes a burden. Well, we should be properly tired at the end of the day if we've done what we're supposed to do, either mentally or physically. And that tiredness is a kind of mild suffering. Hmm. So I tell my students, I say, look, you're supposed to take being in school to be the equivalent of a full-time job. And if you're not tired at the end of the day from having worked at your studies, it's a sign that you're not working as hard as you're supposed to. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure they will take that lesson to heart, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm actually thinking, you know, anything that you want to come to an end, I just, you know, working with Todd sort of falls into that kind <laughs> of category. Please so. make it stop. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> and then finally, you, you talk about uh, redemption and consummation and what, what suffering should prompt us to seek. I remember yeah. some years ago, I cannot remember if it was John Piper or David Powlinson wrote a very short article online. I think it may have been John Piper, uh, Don't Waste Your Cancer, I think mm-hmm. was the title, where he was right. making a point. I think he'd been diagnosed with, I think it was prostate right. cancer mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, yeah. And he was trying to make the point that uh, instinctively we see suffering as something to avoid, to overcome, to to inoculate ourselves against. Uh, and yet there is there's, there are things to be gained from these experiences that are important. Um, how do you think about suffering? And for our listeners who don't know, of course, uh, I believe you're in a wheelchair. Is that correct, Mark? Right. Due to a, right. child, chi- a tragic childhood accident. So you've had a lifetime to reflect upon this uh, and speak very personally, uh, obviously, about, uh, mm-hmm. about these things. What have you sought through your suffering? What, what do you say to people who are suffering in terms of, of how to make use of it? It seems to me, Carl, that um, I might very well not be a Christian if it weren't for having had this paralyzing accident when I was 17 and having fallen about 50 feet off a Tarzan-like rope swing. 
Mm -hmm. Um, spending six months in the hospital, getting back to the place where for many years I could walk with a cane or two and then with crutches. And then after having broken a hip six years ago, now being in a wheelchair full time, Mm -hmm. what I have found over the years is that, um, suffering quite often means that the normal distractions of life are dimmed in such a way that they no longer have the attractiveness they had before. And so in my case, as soon as I hit the ground and saw that my legs were in this little creek and hit my leg, knowing that all I was feeling was a kind of buzzing it and nothing else, all of the distractions of my life, all of the things that I had been doing that were uh, really dangerous because I was a wild kid, wild driving, taunting my teachers at school, all those sorts of things, they all just fell away. And I knew that I had to pay attention to what actually was important in life. And I found actually in that first six months, as they got me back on my feet and long leg braces and so on, that if I took a spill, that I had this immediate sense of God's presence with me. And uh, that is largely what has stuck with me over the years, not merely through physical suffering. But for instance, when I had a hard time finishing my dissertation, Um, uh, I found that the only way that I could survive the depression of having a hard time finishing it was that I had to start every morning with an hour to an hour and a half of biblical or theological study and prayer that without, um, without working at my relationship with God and feeling that he was with me early in the morning, I just couldn't go on. And through that, I ended up with the biblical basis that I think is what now shows through these books. So I think our business again and again is to recognize, just as Paul does in Romans 5, 3 through 5, that we can rejoice in our suffering because it leads us to endure. And endurance leads to a certain sort of proven character And as Paul says, that proven character leads to hope, and the hope is one where we're not going to be ashamed because we can think of what will be true, which is that there will be a time of no more suffering, no more tears, when we will be face-to-face with our Lord forever. Mm -hmm. That's... That's hard to follow up. I mean, I'm I'm so moved by that because I stood before um, my congregation on Sunday and, and just said something to them that I've said several times, which is I've been at this church covenant Presbyterian for nine years now. And um, it's a very happy church, but I've, I've never been in a church that has had to steward so much suffering just from people that the kinds of losses that we deal with in the lives of our people regularly. And, and yet there is a depth of sweetness to that congregation that is, unique in my experience and i cannot help but believe there's a connection there i think that's exactly right todd if you think of the fact that the person who in the new testament suffered more than anyone else physically and so on and so forth which is paul of course our lord suffered the most with regard to his being separated from his father on the cross but paul Mm -hmm. with the catalog that he gives in second corinthians Uh, about all of the suffering that he did. He's the man who wrote that God is working all things for our good in Romans 8.28, and then goes on and says, can anything separate us from the love of God? And he says, no, nothing can. 
And uh, so it was his deep sense of suffering that allowed him also to have this very deep sense of God's care for him yeah. and for us. Yeah. Um, well, before before we we wrap up, this is the second volume in the book. Uh, some of our listeners, I know the folks at my church will remember the first volume because we've we've gotten that out to people in our church. This is the second volume. What can we anticipate? There's going to be four of these. What can we anticipate for the third volume? Well, the third volume, uh, in fact, is our God will never leave us nor forsake us as a title and. The first two chapters are going to deal with the fact that uh, we need to be in a covenantal relationship with God, and in order to do that, God has to speak to us. And so the first two chapters are dealing with the trustworthiness of Scripture and the centrality of language to personal life. Hmm. Then the last two chapters will end up dealing with providence and going through what Scripture says about God's providence What I'm hoping is that uh, when I get done with the fourth chapter, each of these volumes has four chapters, that when I get done with the fourth chapter in that volume, it will be clear that God's providence can be thought of as if it were a great symphony, where in fact there are discordances in the middle of it. Think of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. But the discordances are all worked out in such a way that ultimately one's heart rests in the sounds that one hears as the entire piece closes. The only difference will be when we are forever with God, the sounds, the music, the beauty of what God is doing will never die out. Well, now I'm looking forward to that. Um, I want want to thank our guest, uh, Mark Talbot. He's a professor of philosophy at uh, Wheaton College, and we've been talking to him about um, his wonderful new book, the second volume in his uh, series, Suffering in the Christian Life. The title of this second volume is Give Me Understanding That I May Live, Situating Our Suffering Within God's Redemptive Plan. And I would just tell you all, uh, you need this second volume, just like we we uh, talked about the first volume. These are these are shaping up to be for me as a pastor and just as a, a, a believer who has to steward painful things as well. Um, uh, some of the most helpful things I have in, in my library and part, part of it is twofold because they keep grounding me in scripture and because of the, I don't know how else to put it other than the, the pastoral warmth of, of the writing. And so we highly commend um, the first and now this second volume to you. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been really good to be with you. Thanks, fellows. Mm -hmm. If you all will go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, you can enter to win a copy of Mark Talbot's new book. Um, And so please do that. And um, while you're there, you can uh, think about making a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals so that they can continue to provide this sort of content uh, to you. Until then, we look forward to being with you all next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. 
For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Reformation Heritage Books is a publisher and bookseller whose mission it is to equip the saints to serve Christ and His Church through biblical, experiential, and practical resources. Reformation Heritage Books reading material is God-glorifying and in accord with Scripture and historic Reformed creeds for the promotion and defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each book published or sold, whether from the Puritans or modern-day authors, subscribes to the three forms of unity, that is, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort, as well as the Westminster Standards. To learn more and to browse the impressive inventory of available resources from trusted Reformed writers, visit heritagebooks.org.